1: This morning, we are continuing a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We've called the series The Gospel According to Nehemiah because even though Nehemiah lived about 500 years, uh, give or take, before Jesus, uh, we believe that Nehemiah, like the rest of the Bible, uh, paints a picture of Jesus. Jesus tells us that the whole Bible is about him. It's all either looking forward to his coming or looking back at his cross and resurrection. And so we've been looking at Nehemiah and seeing all of the striking ways that uh, the calling in Nehemiah's life, the work that God was doing in Nehemiah's time, uh, parallels our own. Right? Nehemiah was a leader of God's people when they were returning from their exile in Babylon and working to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And while in many ways that seems far removed from our lives, their calling was the same as ours. To be the people of God marked out by his love, And to be a witness of his rule and reign to their neighbors, uh, to the nations around them and the people around them. And we see that they did that uh, in the midst of great difficulty and struggling and opposition, uh, just as we do. And so, uh, this morning we are in Nehemiah chapter 6. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word?
0: Nehemiah 6, verses 1 through 16. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphiram in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king." And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands." Now when I went to the house of Shemamiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, "Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. He had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, and 52 days, And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly into their own esteem, for they have perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love.
1: Amen. Thank you. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, gave his first inaugural address in 1933, uh, the nation was in the depths of financial crisis. Uh, The Great Depression had kicked into full swing. The stock market had crashed. He had won the presidency uh, relatively, it seems odd to us seeing how well we know him uh, now and his role in history, but he was a relative unknown. He'd won his first election uh, largely on the back of his folksy good nature and optimism. And yet, uh, by the time he took office at his inaugural, uh, the nation was reeling and looking to him uh, for some kind of answers. And so he stood and gave what's become known as one of the great inaugural addresses in our nation's history. And I'm going to read uh, part of the first part. I will not attempt my FDR voice. He says, I am certain that my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly nor need we shrink from honestly facing the conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured. It will revive and it will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Of course, the famous part of that speech is the famous, uh, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. And of course, at the time, America and Americans had other things to fear, right? There was a legitimate fear of losing what they owned. There was uh, the fear of losing crops, of losing uh, the value of their savings, fear of diminishing as a nation. And yet, uh, the reason that this speech has been so enduring and so inspiring is that FDR put his finger on something that's true of the human condition. That it's ultimately fear itself, not the things that we fear, but the experience of fear, that ultimately has the power to paralyze us. What he says uh, can keep us retreating instead of advancing. That it's not what's out there that we fear, but the actual experience of anxiety, of worry, of crippling fear that can hold us back. Fear itself is what overwhelms us. We see this to be true even in the movies that we watch. If you think about the most terrifying movies you've ever seen, it's rarely the thing itself, the ghost or the alien or the shark or whatever it is, that's scary. It's the fear of the thing. right? If you go back and re-watch Jaws, there's nothing about the 1970s uh, robot shark that's especially terrifying. But it's the music, it's the swirl in the water, it's the kids playing that, that strikes fear even still 50 years later. Uh, in our hearts. It's the fear itself that can get to us. And Nehemiah 6 uh, is a chapter about fear. It's a chapter about the fears that we face. It's a chapter about the ways that we can overcome fear through faith. In verses 9 and 13, uh, we see the intentions of Nehemiah's enemies. Look at verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will then drop from the work and it will not be done. And then again in verse 13, for this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. What's going on is that Nehemiah's enemies are working to strike fear into Nehemiah's heart and the idea being that if he's afraid uh, that he won't act as he should, that he won't lead as he should, that he won't love as he should. Because fear for Nehemiah stood between him and his calling. Fear stood between him and what God had called him to do. And friends, it's the same way uh, for each of us. Each of us have a calling in our lives, some way that our lives are meant to matter. Ultimately, uh, for God, for our neighbors, what he's called us to do. And fear for each of us stands in the way. We're called to love. And yet the fear of rejection for many of us can keep us inside of ourselves not reaching out in love. We're called, each of us, to serve the poor and the vulnerable, and yet we're afraid, honestly, of entering into that suffering, of entering into the possibility of suffering on the behalf of those who suffer. Some of us are called to be parents, and yet every day the deepest fear is that we are screwing it up terribly uh, and that our very best efforts... At raising children uh, or failing and so we retreat. Some of us are called to jobs and to engage in places in our work where we fear every day that we don't have what it takes to be successful in our work and that one day we're going to be found out to have been hired by mistake somehow or that that we don't really belong there. Fear always works against our calling. And so how can we learn from Nehemiah, from Nehemiah chapter 6, how to overcome our fear And to engage with the work that God has given us to do in our relationships and in our world. And we're going to look at three simple things. And it has to do with the God that we worship, the role that we play, and the focus of our vision. First, the God that we worship. The word that's used for fear here that we've looked at in verses 9 and 13 comes from the same Hebrew word that's used over and over again in the Old Testament when we are called to fear the Lord when we're called to fear God, that it comes from the same same root word. And I think this is a brilliant insight just in the way that the Hebrew language is constructed, is that they had a natural understanding that fear and worship are vitally connected. Now, when we talk about the fear of God, those can be strange words uh, for modern ears. It can sound as though like God is, is a deity in the sky that we are meant to be terrified of. But the fear of the Lord has to do with reverence. It has to do with the vision of God in his beauty, in his majesty, in his weight, in his glory, that demands that he be taken seriously. And so to fear the Lord is to give him the reverence and the honor and the awe that he deserves as the creator and author of all things. To fear the Lord is to live your life in a way that his majesty, his glory is at the center of your life. That it has a weight in your life that nothing else really has. And this is precisely where fear comes in. Because when we fear something, when we're gripped by fear, it's because in those moments, that thing that we fear losing, that thing that we fear happening, actually in those moments becomes for us like a God. It becomes something that in our eyes seems bigger and more weighty and more important than God himself. Ed Welch uh, wrote a great book. He's a Christian counselor. And if if fear and anxiety is something that you wrestle with in a particularly acute way, uh, if if I recommend one book on fear, he wrote a great book called Running Scared uh, that really gives some great gospel resources for dealing with anxiety and worry and fear. But here's what Welch writes. Fear says I need and I might not get. And so if we need comfort, we will fear pain. If we need approval, we'll fear criticism. If we need money, we'll fear lack. Worry reveals our allegiances. Fear and worry are not mere emotions. They are expressions of what we hold most dear. See, what he's saying is that the things that you think that you have to have in your life, the things that you believe if they were taken from you in your life, that your life would no longer have meaning, it would no longer be worth living, you just couldn't get out of bed in the morning, that it's often the 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 things that you most dearly hold and fear losing reveal something that not necessarily is a bad thing, but a good thing that has come to matter too much in your heart. The Bible often uses the language of idolatry to talk about things like that, that in those moments, those things have become functional gods. Fear of losing your wealth, fear of losing the approval of other people, fear of, of losing core relationships in your life. And so fear... Often as a path, it's a string that we can pull to find our way to the idols of our hearts. Those things that we can't imagine ever suffering or ever losing. You know, I think I've, I think I've shared this uh, with you before. For the first several years of our church plant, I, I don't often, I've don't i not often been somebody who remembers my dreams. I'll often just wake up and, you know, Haley and I will talk, did you have any dreams? I don't remember. Nothing, I don't remember any of it. But for a couple of years, I had a recurring vivid dream. And It was right around the time that we were planning the church, and here's what the dream was, uh, that I would get up to start preaching, and I would not be able to find my notes. And then, I, not only would I not be able to find my notes, I would have no memory of what I was supposed to be saying. I would just get up and start stammering for words. And one by one, uh, it was always on a packed Sunday, and one by one, the you find people, uh, would stand up and walk out, quietly gather your things and leave until I was left in an empty room. And this happened over and over again, night after night, until finally I said, God, <laughs> I don't normally have nightmares. I don't normally have dreams that I remember in such, vi- in such kind of viv- vivid way. And yet when I woke up every morning, it felt like this had happened. And so it struck me that this was uh, something that had come to matter too much in my life, that there was an anxiety Uh, that haunted the idea of the approval of others, the success of our church, uh, my approval uh, and success as a minister, that had come to matter too much. It had come to be what the Scriptures would call an idol uh, in my heart and in my life. And the way forward, the way through it, was to begin to let go of that idol, to let God grow larger, to start to think more about the God who's called me into the work than I do about the circumstances around it and the approval of other people. And so Nehemiah shows us the way. They were actually able to resist fear through worship and prayer, through through allowing God to grow larger in our hearts and our lives. The way that he responds in verse 9 is beautiful. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hand. He lifts his eyes from the fears, from the taunts, to God and asks God to strengthen his hands. And so we have to have our eye on the God that we worship. Secondly, we need to be aware of the role that we play. One of the main themes that comes up uh, in this chapter of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah uh, is being tempted to confuse the role that he plays in God's story with other roles. We're told in verse 5 that Nehemiah was considered, and under the Persian king, he was considered a governor. He was entrusted with a a region within Israel, the region around Jerusalem. He was given a job to do within it. He was a governor over Judah. And yet, uh, the first uh, allegation that comes against him is that he is uh, threatening to become king and to rival the Persian king. If you look in verses 6 and 7, In it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that this is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now let's come and take counsel together. What's going on is that they're saying Nehemiah, everybody says that you're going to become the king of Israel. And that once, you're, once you've become a king of Israel, you are going to rebel against the Persian king and seek your independence. And Nehemiah understood that if this rumor got out, if the Persian king had heard that his governor was talking about becoming king and was talking about rebelling against him, that this would spell doom for his project of rebuilding Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah answers, that this is, this is far from the truth. He says, this is an invention of your own mind. Nehemiah, in this moment, knew who he was and what he was called to do. Because there's something about the report that comes against him that's true. Right, Israel, if you read the Old Testament, Israel uh, was destined to not be ruled by pagan kings. Israel was, uh, it was written in the scriptures, it was prophesied that instead of, even though they were often ruled over by first the Egyptians, then the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, eventually the Greeks and Romans, that God's people ultimately would not be ruled over by others, but they would have a king. A king who would begin to remake the world, who would eventually rule the world. Someone who would sit on the throne of David and come to rule the entire world. But Nehemiah says, I'm not that guy. You're, that, that's not my job here. I'm a governor. I have a role to play. My life in some really significant ways is going to point towards that king, but I am not that king. I'm a governor, not a king. There's an incredible freedom from fear that comes when we come to recognize our place in God's story. We have a vital role to play. Our lives matter. They're significant. We have real responsibility, but we are not the king. Right? We are shepherds. We, we, we look after a piece of the kingdom, a piece of what God's given us, our homes, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our families, our friendships. But those things belong to another. We are not the king. The king is Jesus. Fear uh, ultimately grows out of our experience of vulnerability and our desire for control. Right? Vulnerability is a core part of being human. Right To be human is to be vulnerable. We don't have endless control over our lives. Bad things happen. Right? We get sick. We lose things. We're betrayed in relationships. There's things that happen to us as human beings that are outside of our control. And where fear and anxiety take root is we, we experience that vulnerability and we don't like it very much. We don't like being a, a potential victim. We don't like the prospect of something beyond our control. And so we start looking for ways to control, right? We start looking for ways to manage our vulnerability. Well, if I just can achieve enough, gain enough, earn enough, succeed enough, learn enough, then I'll somehow insulate myself from the pain of living in a fallen world. But because we know we can never quite get there, because we know we can never quite attain to that level of control in our lives, Fear continues to haunt us. Anxiety plagues us. Worry keeps us awake at night. This is why it's so important for us in our lives to recognize that freedom from fear comes not from finally attaining enough control over our lives, but from recognizing that we're never going to attain control over our lives. And trusting that there is a king who does order all things and he's good. That there is a king who is on the throne, who rules his creation and who rules our lives. And it's not us. And we can trust him. We can trust him even when hard things happen. We can trust him even in the midst of suffering. That we can trust that there is a good king ruling on the throne. Now, of course, the New Testament shows us that this king that was rumored, the king that all of Nehemiah's neighbors thought that he was going to become, uh, is Jesus, right? That he is the son of David, the one who was born to rule, the one who was born to reign on his throne. And Christ as our king doesn't erase our vulnerability. He doesn't give us complete control over our lives. But what Christ the king does do is he triumphs and has victory over our biggest enemies. In right, the passage that we read earlier in the service, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Right, Christ, in his death and resurrection, is victorious over sin and death. He's victorious over those two great enemies that most plague us. Friends, if we don't have to fear death, we don't have to fear anything. Right, Death is the one fear that, haunt, that kind of lurks behind the shadows of all of our other fears. Right? Death is the one fear that means that our, that our temporary financial losses might mean our ultimate ruin. Right? It was, it's what means that our temporary experiences of heartbreak and rejection might mean our ultimate loneliness in the grand scheme of things. That death is the ultimate human fear. Right? In the wake of death, nobody sits on their deathbed and worries about you know, whether or not they clean the kitchen enough that day or whether or not how their stocks are doing that morning. Right, death is the fear that relativizes all of our other fears and makes them seem smaller in comparison. And if Jesus has robbed the sting out of death, then he's taken the sting out of all of our fears, out of all of our sorrows, because we know that he has triumphed over these things. If death is swallowed up in victory, if Jesus is ultimately the ruler of all things, then the the, the greatest thing we can do to overcome fear in our lives is to climb down off of our self-appointed throne over our own lives. To give up rule over our own lives. This is what the scriptures call repentance. Repentance is us getting off of the throne of our own life, our own desire to be our own gods, to be our own kings and queens. To say, God, I have desired a place in my own life and in my world that only you are worthy of. And so I'm going to get off the throne, and I want you to rule. I want you to order my life. I want you to, to order my, my family, my home, my job. I want you to rule. Because when I try to rule, I only ruin things. I only come up to my own limits of my own authority. So first, Nehemiah is tempted with this offer, this, this temptation and rumor of kingship. And then they attempt to lure him into the temple. If you look at the second part, uh, starting in verse 10, it's a little bit hard to follow, but his enemies, uh, Tobiah, Geshem, and Sandalot, appoint a false prophet who brings him into his home, says, hey, they're all out to get you. Come with me, let's run into the temple and hide. Let's go into the temple, they'll never look for you there. We'll go in there, we'll let this pass, and then you can come out. They wouldn't dare come into the temple to attempt to take your life. And that's what leads to Nehemiah's uh, statement in verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. What's happening here is he's been tempted to take the office of a, of a, of a king and now he's being tempted to take the privilege of a priest. Right? In their world, only the priest was allowed to go into the temple. The temple was the place of God's holiness. It was the place where only, the, only the, the priest could be assured of being able to enter and live and then leave again. Right? Only the priest, and him only covered by the blood of sacrifices, was able to get that close to the holiness of God and survive. And so Nehemiah wisely says, Look, you're telling me there's people out there that are trying to kill me. And I might have something to fear out there, but if I go in there, I have more to fear because I'm going to be somebody who's wandering into the presence of a holy God, uninvited, unallowed, uncovered. And so i can't, far be it from me to claim the role of a priest. I am not the kind of man who can be in the presence of a holy God because of my sin and come out unscathed. Nehemiah recognizes Uh, that despite his role, despite uh, the real and vital calling that God had given him, the key part that he played in God's story of his kingdom, even he needed a sacrifice. Even he needed a high priest to make uh, peace between him and God, to make it so that he could go into God's presence and enjoy God's presence. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14 writing of Jesus, uh, the author of Hebrews, says this, Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who, is in, every, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What he's saying is that on this side of Jesus, we too have to come to the realization that we are not our own high priests. We too are not able to stand in the presence of a holy God. But Jesus, our great high priest, has made a way for us to be in the presence of God. Through his blood on the cross, we can now enjoy the presence and communion with God. That's why the author of Hebrews says, let us go in with confidence. Talk about freedom from fear. He's saying, listen, it, the message of this chapter is, if Jesus is your king, he's defeated all of your deepest fears in this life. Right? Even, though, uh, they, even if your worst fears come true in this life and you lose everything, because of Jesus, your ultimate story, you are victorious. You are victorious in him and you have nothing to fear in life. And if Jesus is your high priest, you have nothing to fear from heaven. You have nothing to fear on earth, and you have nothing to fear in heaven. He's made peace between you and God. Right? You no longer have to fear judgment day, appearing before God and his righteousness and being judged and condemned. You have peace with God so that you can with confidence go to God in prayer. You can in confidence face God eternally. Nothing left to fear on earth, nothing left to fear in heaven. That is a life of freedom. A life trusting in Jesus, as our King, and as our Priest, giving us peace and confidence and a humble boldness in this life and in the life to come. And then finally, we see in Nehemiah six the power of a focused vision. Look at what he, I, I love his response. Uh, these men are trying to get him; they're trying to lure him out of the city with this threat that he is. Um, come up against these enemies because they're aware that he's trying to become king. And then look what he says to them in verse 3. I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down to you. Why Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Four times, Nehemiah says to them, essentially, I don't got time for this. I've got a job to do. I'm trying to build a wall around a big city in five months. I don't have time to burn daylight coming outside of the city to talk with you about these fears that you're trying to drum up in me. I don't have time to waste on this kind of fear. I don't have time to waste on your criticism. I don't have time to waste with your plans a beautiful uh, picture of somebody being so single-minded and focused in their calling yes, yes, yes. that all of the things that might distract him or, or the things that might cause him anxiety or worry start to diminish in light of the calling that he has in his life. His vision is fixed on the job that he has to do in Jerusalem. This is, a, I think, a, a vivid foreshadowing in a picture of another man who came 500 years later. Jesus, there's, there's three times in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus encounters uh, rejection and, and opposition. And the author of the Gospel, uh, Luke, says that Jesus set his face resolutely towards Jerusalem. Some of, the, some of the older translations say he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. That when uh, Jesus's opponents, when those who rejected him with those who tried to kill him ultimately were bringing their threats uh, against him, he set his face towards Jerusalem because he too was gripped by a calling. He knew the role that he had to play in God's redemptive work in the world. And so he set his eyes on Jerusalem with a resolute focus that he was to go there. And he knew what that meant for him. He knew that that meant death on a cross, his high priestly sacrifice so that you and I and all men, women, and children could have access to God through faith. Jesus had a sense of his calling that gave him a focused vision. In this world, now maybe more than ever, it is so incredibly easy to get distracted. Right? We have literally an endless stream of voices, a never-ending amount of information and news that can cause us fear, that can cause us anxiety, that can cause us worry. Right? We don't have, I, I, I confess to having a form of spiritual ADD. I, it's easy for me to lose sight of my calling, to lose sight of who I am and why I'm here and what matters most in my life. And yet if we set our eyes on Jesus, whose eyes never once wandered from his calling, who never once wandered from the path to the cross, when we get distracted and we look around and we forget why we're here and what we're supposed to do, Jesus never forgets us. He never forgets his plan in our lives. He never forgets his redemptive purpose in the world to make all things new. Jesus remains focused on his calling out of his love for us, out of his desire to glorify his Father. And when we see him in all of his focus, we can live lives of humble courage, of focused witness, lives that maybe look a little bit like Nehemiah's. They can say, no, I've got a great calling. I've got a work to do in this world, to love my neighbors, to love my God, to build the church, to build my family, to do good work where he's called me. There, in the eyes of Jesus, we can find the power to overcome fear. Did you know that the single most frequently repeated command in all of the Bible is do not fear, do not be afraid? More than any other command in the Bible, the command do not fear. It's usually the first words on the lips of angels when they appear uh, to humans, perhaps with good reason. You might be afraid. Do not fear. It's words that we often find on the lips of Jesus himself. Why are you anxious and worried about many things? Do not fear. Do not fear. I read somewhere that it's, uh, it's a command that's given 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the week. Um, I I cannot claim to know that's true. I did not count them. Um, But do not fear. You know, one of the main, um, I think, presuppositions that we have about faith in our culture is that the Christian religion is ultimately just a bunch of commands, right? It's ultimately just a bunch of rules about what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. And surely there are commands in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the religion of Jesus is one in which the most given command is do not fear. It's to let go of fear. Because Jesus has taken the worst that the fears of this world have. The sting of sin, the depths of death, and he's overcome them for us. So when the resurrected Jesus says do not fear, you have good reason. Not only to obey, but to believe that you can find that level of freedom from fear and worry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you uh, looked the darkness of our worst fears in the face and overcame them. We fear rejection and you were despised and rejected by men. We fear poverty and loss and you gave everything you who are rich, becoming poor for our sake. We fear suffering, and you drank uh, the cup of suffering down to the last dregs. We fear death, uh, and you willingly took on a death you didn't deserve. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to see in you the one who has overcome all of our worst fears. Help us, Lord Jesus, in your resurrection to find our victory our freedom from fear and anxiety and worry. Lord, there's things in this life uh, that keep us up at night, that we fear losing, fear what we would be like if we lost them. Lord Jesus, where those things have become idolatrous needs in our lives, help us to lay them down at your feet. Where we have tried to be the gods, the kings and queens of our own lives, Lord, help us to lay that at your feet, trusting you as our King relying on you as our priest. Lord Jesus, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but our days are in your hands. Help us to walk with you, uh, trusting in you, uh, with an increasing freedom uh, from fear and worry and anxiety. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.